0: Uh, I am an, an enthusiastic and unashamed fan of classical music. I know that makes me feel like a geek sometimes to admit something like that. Uh, but I started loving classical music all the way back as a child when I was forced to take piano lessons. But my love for classical music really kicked in about 15, 20 years ago when I read a book by a, a guy named Phil Golding. Now, Golding had a really interesting past. He'd been an LA Times reporter. He'd been an oil company executive. He had been the Assistant Secretary of Defense for the United States in Washington DC. And so when Phil retired he thought to himself, I better come up with a hobby that's really interesting, that's challenging, that will keep me busy, you know, with all these varied interests. So he thought, you know, maybe I should start collecting music. What genre of music? Should it be jazz? Should it be rock and roll? Uh, country western, and he thought, you know all of those genres, those styles, very limited. They've only been around for a few short years. Classical music dawned on him. It's been around for three to four hundred years. He got this wide variety of composers and cultural backgrounds, and instrumentation and styles, and so he dove into studying classical music to get. Get to know classical music. He began to really dig it, and then he wrote this book to help other people dig it. And the the book's written like a good sports writer. And so I read this book, and you know, he caught my interest. My eyes were open to a world I never knew existed. You ever had that experience before? Maybe not with classical music, but you ever have your eyes open to a world you didn't know exist existed before? So uh, maybe you're Maybe you're a first-time parent, and you had no idea there was this world called parenting out there till your first little darling arrived. And suddenly you learned about pediatricians and formulas and diapers and tot classes at the Park District. And uh, I was with my granddaughter, Charlotte, at Ravinia this summer because we were going to hear uh, Lori Brickner. You ever heard of her? So if you're in a parenting world, you know Lori. She wrote, here come the dinosaurs, marching, marching. <laughs> and man, you haven't lived till you've seen a bazillion tots do marching, marching at R- Ravini. Just like there's a world out there you didn't know about. Or maybe your, your eyes got open to the world of martial arts or the, the world of of uh, photography, the world of fantasy football, the world of cooking, and things you didn't know exist. Hey, well, there's a world out there. Well, today we begin a four-part series, and our goal is to open our eyes to the world of the world, <laughs> the world of the world. God wants you to take an interest in the world, to have a heart as big as the world. You know, why? Why? Well, because as the most familiar verse in the Bible says, John 3, 16, God so loved, say it with me, the world that he gave his one and only son. God wants you to love the world because he loves the world. It's always amusing to me to hear people who are not Christ followers speak disparagingly of believers saying, "Uh, you guys kind of, you don't live in the real world. I mean, you're sheltered, you're naive. I want to say, really, because my observation has been just the opposite. People I know who don't follow Jesus, their, their, their world's like this big. It revolves around their stuff, their job, their families, their financial investments, their vacation plans. You know, the Christ followers I know, their world's like ginormous around Christ Community Church. How often do you hear us updating you on our ministry partners in places like Sierra Leone and Bangladesh and Brazil and Nicaragua and Haiti and Czech Republic, places where we partner. And and, and we ask you, pray for the, the people of these countries. Here's the latest that's coming from there. And we encourage you to give financially to invest in what God's doing in those faraway places. And in fact, we ask you, Hey, periodically jump on a plane with one of our GO teams, take 10 days out of your busy schedule, and serve our partner. And hundreds of you do that every year. So we want to have a heart as big as the world. God wants wants to open our eyes to the world of the world. God wants us to be globally engaged people. You get it? Good. I just wanted to make sure you knew to do that still. So this four-part series that we begin today, it's going to focus on four global realities. So here's the first one. Today we're going to be considering a global crisis. That's where it all begins. If you haven't taken the outline from your program, please take it out. Please fill it in. I believe God brought you here because he wants to speak to you. So as, as God is turning lights on, something clicks. Write it down. Okay, And turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 5. Our text today is Romans 5 verse 12. One verse. I'm not sure I've ever done a sermon on one verse. <laughs> we always work our way through a passage. But today we're going to look at a, a single verse that describes a vast and disastrous global crisis. A crisis that is worse. Listen to me. It's worse than ISIS. A crisis that is worse than an epidemic like Ebola or economic collapse or the next tsunami or desperate food and water shortages. And until we grasp this crisis, we won't give a rip about the world. Until we grasp this global crisis, we will care more about who the Bears are playing this weekend then we will about what's going down in Sierra Leone and Bangladesh and Czech Republic and the places I just mentioned to you. If we don't grasp this global crisis, our world is going to be this big instead of this big. So let me read the single verse to you, Romans 5 verse 12, then we're going to take it apart piece by piece. Therefore, this is the Apostle Paul writing, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. We're going to park on three words in this verse. Each of these words is repeated at least a couple of times. These three words describe a horrifying global crisis. First word is this, fill this out in your program, Sin. I'll read it to you again. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Okay, sin, the Apostle Paul says, entered the world through one man. Who was that dude? Who was the guy who introduced the world to sin? Call it out. Adam. Adam. Now, just an aside, as we begin here, speaking as a guy, It's always kind of bugged me that Adam gets the rap for introducing the world to sin. You know where I'm going with this? Okay. So God takes this original couple, Adam and Eve. He puts them in a virtual paradise. He says you can do anything you want. There's only one rule, and it's sort of a test. Are these people going to obey God or not obey God? There's one tree The only thing I ask God says is you don't eat from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you know the story? What happens? Satan shows up in the guise of a a serpent, a snake, and he tempts Eve. And Eve falls for the temptation and eats the forbidden fruit. And Eve convinces Adam to do the same, no doubt through lots of nagging and pressure. And so how is it that Paul writes what he writes in Romans 5, 12? Because like if it's, I'm writing this epistle, I'm going to say just as sin entered the world through one woman. What's this one man business? Now again, this is just an aside. This is not the main point I want to be making, but it's an important aside, as you'll see by way of application in a moment. Okay, There are two schools of thought why Adam gets the blame. Some say the reason Adam gets the blame is because Adam heard the rule through God see Eve got it secondhand she heard it through Adam Adam heard the rule first so he's more responsible than her the trouble I have with this is you got to assume that day after day walking with God in the garden of Eden that God never clarified things for Eve that he never said and by the way stay away from that tree okay don't eat from that tree I think there's a better explanation. There's another school of thought that says, in some sense, Adam was given a leadership responsibility in this marriage. In some sense, he was going to be held accountable by God for the moral and the spiritual leadership of this home. With me? You see see where I'm going with this. See, Both of them sinned. Both of them were disobedient. Both of them were punished for their sin. So I'm not saying that Eve gets off scot-free, but it's just that when they sin, when they eat the forbidden fruit and they try to hide from God, which is a stupid thing. Don't try to hide from God ever, okay? God shows up in the garden and according to Genesis 3, verse 9, God calls out to the man, where are you? And it's Adam who's calling the carpet front and center to answer for what they've done seems to me guys God's got a role for us to play it's a, it's a role of setting the tone spiritually, morally in our home it's not that our wives don't contribute big, they do but if you're, if you're a husband, if you're a dad you know, I believe we're going to stand accountable before almighty God, you know, are, are we the ones who are setting the tone, are we the ones who turn off the garbage on TV or are we the ones watching it are, are we the ones who say, you know, we can't spend this money on ourselves, on our family, because we've determined to give as generously as we can to the Lord's work? Are you the one behind those, those decisions? Are you the one who's setting the tone for reading the Bible, for praying around the dinner table? Are you the one who's saying, get in the car, we're going to church? Are you the one one who, when we're, we're praising God, you're not standing there mute, but you're singing from your heart and your kids are seeing a spiritual leader? Again, this is just an aside. This isn't the main point, but I thought it might be important to say. Now, back to Romans 5, verse 12. I've been alluding to a relationship between Adam and Eve here. The real relationship that Paul wants to emphasize in this verse is the relationship not between Adam and Eve, but the relationship between Adam and me, Adam and every one of us. Paul seems to say here that just as Adam originally sinned, I too, and you as well, have become guilty of sin thousands of years later. Paul infers in this verse that there is a connection between Adam's sin and mine. There is a cause effect thing going on here. Adam caused something, we're experiencing the effects of it today. Everybody in the world is experiencing the effects. So what is the connection between Adam's sin and ours? In what sense did Adam introduce sin into the world? Well, theologians have interpreted Romans 5.12 in three different ways. And each interpretation, it's, you know, it's got some truth to it. In fact, it can, it can be supported by other verses in the Bible. So we're going to talk theology for just a minute here. Don't let that scare you. You're going to understand. Understand everything I say. Okay, Some theologians say that the connection between Adam's sin and mine is this. This is the first interpretation. I'm guilty of sin because I follow Adam's example. They say that's what Paul is saying here in Romans 5, verse 12, that Adam broke the ice as far as sinning goes. You know, Adam got the ball rolling, Adam showed us how it's done, and every person on this planet has followed his bad example. We've all sinned. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in the final phrase of verse 12, because all sinned. This is absolutely true, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's empirically verifiable there there isn't a person who's hearing my voice right now in St. Charles or in Bartlett or Blackberry Creek or DeKalb or watching online, there isn't a person here that's never sinned. There, there isn't a person who hasn't sinned today, right? Okay, if you've never sinned, show of hands, because you're lying. That's your first one right there. Okay. <laughs> We're all following Adam's example. Not a day goes by that we don't think a thought that's selfish or prideful or impure, that we don't speak a word that is angry or dishonest or critical or gossipy, that we don't do something that's hurtful or cowardly or materialistic. We've all been following Adam's example. In fact, we follow it with such regularity that most of us miss most of our sins. We're oblivious to them because we're such habitual sinners. The Benjamin Franklin, the Benjamin Franklin, he liked to write self-help books. He was constantly trying to reform his character. And so at one point he sat down and he made a list of 12 character virtues that he wanted to develop in his life, and at the same time he he wanted to eschew, he wanted to get rid of sins, vices in his life. So he made this list of 12. He was really proud of the list. And he showed it to a friend of his, a Quaker friend. And the friend said, I think you've missed one virtue. Franklin said, what? He said, how about humility, Ben? So Ben Franklin gets out his quill and he adds humility. Now he's got 13 things to work on. And according to the story, he, he got frustrated trying to work on all 13 at the same time, and so he decided, maybe, maybe I'll have greater success if I just focus on one a week. So he would take one virtue, and he would keep a little record, a notebook, of every time he transgressed, he sinned against that virtue. He was filling page after page after page, and in his biography, this is his conclusion. He says, I was surprised to find myself so much fuller of faults than I had imagined. Wouldn't we all conclude the same thing if we kept careful account of our sins every day? I'm guilty of sin because I follow Adam's example. Now, here's a second way to see the relationship between Adam's sin and our sin in Romans 5.12. Some theologians point out that the reason everybody follows Adam's example is because we've all inherited Adam's sinful nature. We've all inherited Adam's sinful nature. So I could say, I am guilty of sin because I possess Adam's nature. Now, Paul doesn't say exactly that in Romans 5, verse 12, but that truth pops up in lots of other Scripture texts. You know, David says it this way in Psalm 51, verse 5. This is right after his sin with Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet comes and points out the sin to David. And David says in in Psalm 51, verse 5, he says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I'm a natural-born sinner, David said, straight out of the womb. Now, you know this, right? How many of you are parents, your moms and dads? Okay, how many of you moms and dads had to teach your kids how to sin? They came by naturally, right? So my my daughter, Emily, lives with her her husband and two kids out on the West Coast in Portland. She's got a two-year-old ruby and a... Just a new little guy, six months old, Cal. And so we're FaceTiming him a week or so ago, and we're talking to Ruby first, and she's telling us about Play-Doh and books her mommy's reading to her and swim class. And then then her mommy, my daughter Emily, says, Okay, Ruby, it's time for grandma and grandpa to see Cal. And she puts the phone on Cal and we see Ruby's hand come in, grab a tuft of Cal's hair and rip it, you know? <laughs> and Cal starts screaming bloody murder. My daughter Emily says, "Gotta go, Mom, Dad." Boom, end of the FaceTime. So, who taught Ruby how to do that? Grandma Sue, maybe? (laughs) Nobody taught her how to do that. She came by it naturally. We come by our sinning naturally. We've got this sin nature. The Apostle Paul describes the influence of his own sinful nature this way. Romans 7, verses 18 and 19. See if you can identify with this. Paul says, I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do this I keep on doing. You ever felt that way? Of course you are. Come on, tell me I'm not the only one who's... Who's felt this way. There, there are good things you know you should do and you just can't make yourself do them. There are bad things you know you should stop doing and you can't stop doing them. We are guilty of sin because we possess Adam's sinful nature. Now there's a third way to understand what Paul says about the connection between Adam's sin and our sin in Romans 5 verse 12. And this third way is very important to understand and many of you have probably never heard this explained before. So here's here's how I'll put it. I am guilty of sin because Adam was my representative. So I'm guilty of sin because Adam was my representative. This may may sound a little bit like the last interpretation. I got Adam's nature, but it's different. So let me explain to you how it's different. Let me explain to you this Adam was my representative interpretation with an Old Testament analogy. Okay, you, You probably are familiar with the story of David and Goliath. So 950 B.C. or so. The Israelites are at war with the Philistines and there is a big battle brewing. They're about to engage in a big battle and the Israelites are on one side of this field and the Philistines are camped on the other side. Just last spring, along with 50 people or so from Christ Community Church, we stood on this field and we looked and the tour guide said, that's where the Philistines were, that's where the Israelites were and you could picture it in your mind. Just before the battle gets started, a champion on the side of the Philistines named Goliath steps out of the field and he hails the Israelites. He says, hey guys, we don't all have to die here in battle. I got a proposal. Instead of fighting this big war and a lot of people losing their lives, how about you choose a representative? I'll be the representative for the Philistines. We'll duke it out, and whoever wins, if your guy wins, we're subject to you. If, if our guy, if I win, then you're subject to us. So this is a great proposal. Only trouble is Israelites can't find anybody brave enough to face Goliath. The dude's ginormous. Scripture says his spear is, is like the, the beam of a weaver. So no one's willing to fight him until this young boy named David speaks up. Now David was was not a soldier, but he had been sent by his dad to bring food to his older brothers who were soldiers in the Israelite army. And David says, I'll take him on. And you know how the story ends. David whoops Goliath. And because Goliath loses, the Philistines lose. He was their representative and he failed. Adam was humanity's representative at the beginning of time. He was your representative. He was my representative. He went toe-to-toe with temptation, and he lost. And as a result, Adam's loss became our loss. The guilt of Adam's sin became our guilt. That's what Paul's saying here in Romans 5, verse 12. And some of you are thinking, well, that isn't fair. You know, I don't need anybody to do my fighting for me. I can stand on my own two feet. I demand a replay. Okay, I want to represent myself. Is that what you think you want? Let me tell you, you don't want what you think you want. This this representative system that God's put in place, it actually is in our best interest. Let me give you a negative reason and a positive reason why the representative system works best for us. Negatively speaking, you think you could have done a better job than Adam? No way. I mean, this, this guy had never sinned before in his life. He's in a virtual paradise. He's carrying on daily conversations with God Almighty, and yet he's tempted and he falls. And you think you're going to stand? I mean, di- didn't, we, didn't we all admit a little bit ago in this service that many times in the course of a day we sin, we fall? See, it's not unfair for God to say, I'll let Adam be your representative. But let me give you a positive reason why this is a good idea. Because Adam has been our representative with regard to sin, Jesus Christ can now be our representative with regard to salvation. And that's huge. See, one day we're going to stand before God, every one of us. It's what the Bible teaches so imagine this if you would, you're standing before Almighty God. Scripture says the books will be opened, the books that contain a record of everything you have ever thought, said or done. Now you want to think of the list of sins that'll be compiled there under your name. You want to be represent, you want to represent yourself? See when I'm standing there before Almighty God, he's going to look at the list and he's going to shake his head. But then, God's going to say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, there's an asterisk here. I see that on earth you chose Jesus to be your representative. You surrendered your life to Jesus, and so his death on the cross became the death you deserve to die. You're all paid up. Your debt's been paid. You're clean. Welcome home. Every one of us can say, I'm guilty of sin because I've followed Adam's example. Every one of us can say, I am guilty of sin because I've inherited Adam's sinful nature. Every one of us can say, I am guilty of sin because Adam was my representative and he blew it. But can you say, I've received salvation through Jesus Christ because I've made him my representative. I've put my whole trust in him. I've surrendered my life to him. Can you say that? I don't want to stand before God on my merits. I want to stand before God on the merits of Jesus Christ. Sin. Now, there's a second word that we want to take a look at. In Romans 5, verse 12, it's the word death. Go back to the verse. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin in this way, death came to all people because all sin. Death. Larry King is obsessed with death. I read this in the New York Times this past week, so it's got to be true. Larry King, the talk show host, Legend says that he starts every day by reading the obituaries and he often wonders who's going to do the eulogy at his own funeral. He has survived so far a heart attack, a quintuple bypass, prostate cancer, diabetes, and seven, count them, seven divorces. That'll kill you. But he says that the thing that really gave him a sense of his own mortality was when CNN dropped him from his show a few years ago, and now it's it's like he's lost his reason for living. Larry King gobbles four human growth hormone pills every day. He's arranged to have his body frozen so he could be brought back to life. The thought of dying terrifies him, and it should because he's going to die. In fact, as morbid as it may sound to say this, every person listening to me today is going to die. George Bernard Shaw, the famous playwright, he said it best. I've often used his line because I like it. He said, The statistics are irrefutable, one out of one person dies. So how did this whole death thing get started? Well, the Apostle Paul explains death's origin in Romans 5, verse 12. When Adam introduced sin into the world, Paul says, death followed up sin. If, if you want the whole story, you could go to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Read it for yourself. Again, God placed Adam and Eve in this garden of Eden. Eden told them they could eat from any tree except one the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God added these ominous words when he gave them the rule. Genesis 2, verse 17, For when you eat from it, you will certainly, say it with me, die. When you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, here's a confusing part of the story. Maybe you've wondered about this as you've read the story in the opening chapters of Genesis. Fact is, Adam did eat the forbidden fruit, and yet he didn't die. At least he didn't die immediately. I mean, God immediately punished him in other ways, but God didn't strike him dead. So so was that previous warning, you eat from this tree, you will certainly die. Was it just like an idle threat? You know, the sort of idle threats that parents sometimes make with their kids. Sue and I were hiking in the middle of nowhere uh, this summer, and we came upon a dad and his eight-year-old boy and his eight-year-old boy didn't want to go any further, and so the dad turned to him and said, if you don't keep up, I'm leaving you here in the woods. And I turned to Sue, and I said, no, we won't. <laughs> he said, yeah, dad's going to leave his kid in the middle of the woods? I don't think so. So is, is that what's going on here? God says, you eat from that tree, you'll certainly die. Well, Adam didn't die. Well, no, actually, he did die when he ate the forbidden fruit, and he died immediately. See, see, the Bible talks about death on three different levels. First of all, there is spiritual death. Spiritual death is what happens to our relationship with God when we sin. When we go our way instead of God's way, something we've all done, we die spiritually. When Adam ate the forbidden fruit, when Adam disobeyed God, he died spiritually immediately. Immediately. The truth is, every one of us knows what, it, what it's like to be spiritually dead. The Apostle Paul, running to a group of ordinary people in Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, says, As for you, you were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Spiritual death. And spiritual death leads to a second kind of death. Physical death. What's the connection between spiritual death and physical death? Well, if God is the source of life, and he is, follow this. Okay? When we disconnect from God, we disconnect from the source of life. That's why Adam did die physically, not immediately, but eventually. And that's why physical death is the destiny of every one of us. You know, Some of you have heard me explain this before with the, uh, the vacuum cleaner analogy. Okay, the, the vacuum cleaner is alive. It works as long as it's plugged into the wall socket. But if it becomes unplugged, what do we say? We say, oh, the vacuum died. It died. Now, it doesn't really matter if you got angry and ripped the plug from the wall or you just happened to casually wander too far away and it became unplugged. It doesn't matter how it got done. The minute it's disconnected from the source of life, it dies. It dies. When we sin against God, it doesn't really matter if we do it with a high hand, if we do it rebelliously, if we do it with anger, or we just wander away from God. When we unplug from the source of life, we die. We die spiritually, and eventually that spiritual death becomes physical death. Now, there's a third level of death that we especially need to be concerned about, and that's eternal death. You know, the Bible teaches... Now listen to this. The Bible teaches that if we don't get reconnected with God in this life, if we stay spiritually dead, then when the day for our physical death comes, we will pass into eternity and death will become our permanent condition. We will be eternally dead, eternally separated from God. And the Bible has a word for this eternal death, and the word is hell. Hell. And let me tell you, if we understood the true nature of hell, we would never use the word casually. If we understood what is meant by eternal death, eternal separation from God, hell, we would never say, oh, I had a hell of a day. Or that wide receiver made a hell of a catch. Or if she thinks I'm going to do what she wants me to do, she can go to hell. No. this is serious business eternal death. I was, um, I was at Wrigley Field a week ago watching the Cubs shellac the Diamondbacks 14 to 5, including a Grand Slam home run by Rizzo. I mean, let me just say, if this is the kind of luck I bring the Cubs, then all you Cub fans ought to chip in, buy me season tickets next year. <laughs> I'm just saying. So Sue and I, we get done with the game, we, we went to the game with friends of ours, and uh, we are going to go grab a bite to eat, and the subway was packed, so we said, oh, we'll just take a cab. So we jumped in, into a cab, and there was gridlock, so we had a little bit of an opportunity to get to know our cab driver. The dude was from India, which is always an open door for me. Uh, I was able to say, hey, my dad grew up in India, spent the first 18 years of his life. He was a missionary's kid. And uh, so, whoa, the guy lights up and we're talking all things Indian. And then I asked him, I said, so are you like Hindu or Muslim or Christian? And he says to me, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in any God. He said, in fact, I don't believe in heaven, don't believe in hell. I believe that heaven and hell are what you make them in this world. And he said this like three or four times. Don't believe in heaven, don't believe in hell. Which I always find amusing. I'm not sure if amusing is the right word. But, but when spe- people speak emphatically about the afterlife, it's almost as if they expect their enthusiasm to make their belief a reality. So I don't believe in hell. So now hell doesn't exist just because you say it with enthusiasm. So, so I challenge this guy with something I use whenever I hear this line, I don't believe in hell. I ask people, have you heard of Pascal's wager? Okay, Pascal was a famous uh, philosopher, famous mathematician, French mathematician. He was a Christ follower. And, and Pascal said, this is simply put, he said, you know, you could bet about a lot of things in life. You could wager on this or that. But do you really want to wager your eternity? Like where you are going to spend eternity? You really want to bet that, that your version of no hell is reality? You're going to wager your eternity on that. Yeah, you, you say, I, I don't believe in hell. Nobody spoke about hell more in the pages of Scripture than guess who? Jesus Christ. He was frequently warning people, ordinary people, you don't want to go there. Ordinary people whose sins had disconnected them from the God who is the source of life had experienced spiritual death, which would lead to physical death and could end up in eternal death unless something would be done to change that. Let me take you to the third word. We've looked at sin. We've looked at death. The third word I want you to note in Romans 5 verse 12 is the word all. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Let me ask you, what do you think the word all means in this verse? All. Yeah. means Everybody no exceptions, everybody sins so everybody dies, eternally dies, unless, as we've just been saying, you surrender your life to Jesus, in which case Jesus becomes your representative and his death on the cross becomes the death you deserve to die. And many, many of you have surrendered your life to Jesus. Some of you have heard a message like this before. Some of you have heard a message like this many times before, and you still haven't surrendered your life to Jesus. You're a walking dead person. You're spiritually dead. One day you'll physically die. If nothing changes, you'll die for all eternity. Christ came to give you life, He came to be your representative. I would encourage you, if you, you haven't settled this with Jesus yet, let today be the day. You know, I'm always inviting people, come back to the Welcome Center. If you just want somebody else, if you want to seal it by having somebody else pray with you, they'll pray with you, it'll be a simple prayer. They'll get you started on the road to new life in a relationship with Christ. Now let me go back to those of you who... You have surrendered your lives to Jesus. I'll bet you've got family members, neighbors, good friends who've also heard a message like this before and yet have not entrusted themselves to Jesus as Savior and King of their lives. And you may be the person whom God wants to bring this message to them. And... and, 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 and This is going to be the third time, the tenth time, whatever, that they've heard it. Maybe they need clarity. Maybe it's been garbled, and you're going to be able to make it clear for them. Or maybe you're going to invite them to church one of our Wow Weekends, and they're going to come, and they're going to hear the news about Jesus with clarity and make this decision for themselves, make Jesus the representative. Before this series is out, we're going to talk to you about how you do that with the people you know and love. But for a closing moment here, I want to talk to you about the people you don't know and love. There's 7 billion people on the planet. Of those 7 billion people, Christian leaders estimate that about 3 billion plus are what they call unreached. Now, by unreached, it doesn't mean like they've looked at their religion or no religion, compared it with Jesus and decided to go, you know, a different way than Jesus. It means they don't know about Jesus. They haven't heard about Jesus. They're, they're not like the friends we were talking about a moment ago who haven't surrendered their lives to Christ, people you know. But the fact of the matter is those friends live in a country where there's a church on every street corner, where there are Christian radio stations, where there are people like you who can tell them about what a relationship with Christ means. I'm now talking about people who have no opportunity to hear that message. In the places where we work, Sierra Leone, an estimated 5.9% of the population, Christ followers, who's going to tell the other 94.1% about Christ, that He could be their representative, that they don't have to die eternally? He's taken death in their place. In the Czech Republic, which once was a Christian country, but after decades of communism, all mention of God was snuffed out, 1.8% of the population identify themselves as Christ followers. 1.8%. How about Bangladesh? You want to get real extreme? 0.2%. You see why I'm calling this message a global crisis? You know, 105 people in the world die every minute, which means since I began this sermon, thousands of people have died. And with, without Christ as their representative, they're going into eternal death. Now some of you, I know you're thinking, well, I get asked this question all the time. Certainly God's not going to condemn an innocent person to eternal death you know, in Sierra Leone or, Bangladesh or Czech Republic just because they've never heard about Jesus. I'd say you're absolutely right. God will never condemn an innocent person to death just because they've never heard about Jesus. The trouble is, there are no innocent people on the planet. See, that's what Paul's telling us in Romans 5, verse 12. Every one of us is guilty of sin. We have disconnected from the God who gives life. We've been left for dead. We've we got to change the way we think about people who have not surrendered their lives to Christ, whether it's local friends or people far away. See, we, we have a way of seeing them as alive, but in danger one day of being struck dead by a vengeful God. It's not the picture of the Bible. The picture is they're dead. They're currently dead. But a loving God said, I'll give you life. I'll allow my son to taste the death you deserve to die. Now, how do we get that message out? You know, let let, let me close with an analogy, and I'm going to ask our worship teams to come out on the stage. We're going to collect our gifts, our offerings in just a moment. Imagine that you're a medical researcher, and during this recent Ebola crisis in West Africa, you come up with a cure. You're the person who comes up with the cure in your lab. What are you going to do with the cure? Are you going to sit on it? You're going to say, well, I'd share this with other people, but I'm I'm not an extrovert. I'm kind of an introvert. I'm a quiet person, timid. I don't think so. You're going to say, oh, you know, I got this cure, but fact of the matter is God's awfully unfair letting all those people in West Africa die of this deadly disease. Is that what you're going to say? No. I dare say what you're going to do is get that antidote to everybody who needs it, right? Aren't you? Aren't you going to say, how do we get the word out? How do we reach not only my friends who may may have been infected by the disease? How do we get it to faraway places where people need the cure? Friends, Jesus is the cure. Jesus is the solution to the global crisis, this horrible global crisis. If we don't get our minds, our hearts wrapped around this too much insignificant stuff is going to be way too significant in our lives. Our world is lost. There's sin and death and it's all. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Would you pray with me? Lord God, this is a, uh, it's a stark way for us to begin a series, but the truth of the matter is we would much rather come to church and you know, be treated to some upbeat sort of message when we've been ignoring a truth that you want to sober us up about because you care, you so love the world that you gave your one and only son and you want us to love the world. You want us to be brokenhearted about people who are without Christ. Even people who are sitting in one of our auditoriums right now. Your heart breaks for them. There's nothing you want more than for them to surrender their lives to Jesus right now. And say, yes, I want him to be my representative. And I want him to be my savior, my king. God, over the course of this series, give us a heart. Give us a heart as big as the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.